And we're working now across all the big or most of the big uh, pharma companies you know, to help them really rapidly accelerate uh, the digital transformation. And, and they're looking at, you know, to us to, to help educate them and, and help them think through how they can accomplish that. I'm Clay Hausman, CMO of Octana and host of Contextual Intelligence. To date on this podcast, we've heard the perspectives of three of my Octana colleagues about how AI can improve the commercial process for life sciences companies. Today, we're going to venture outside of Octana for a new perspective, one that is informed by four years in consulting at McKinsey and BCG, another nine years at Pfizer in several different strategy roles, and now as life sciences strategy lead at one of the world's largest technology companies, Adobe. Frederick Bay, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Clay. It's, uh, it's great to be on the podcast. Given the path that you've taken through your career and the different types of vantage points you've had for the life sciences industry, and not even I didn't even mention your, your science background and degree in physics, can you just start by telling us a little bit about the journey that you've taken and what still excites you about the industry and its challenges? It became clear to me pretty early on in high school that, that I wanted to study physics which took me first to France and then the UK for undergraduate degrees. And then I ended up uh, eventually at Yale, where I did a, a PhD in elementary particle physics. Uh, after 11 years in, uh, in academia, I was quite curious about what uh, was beyond the ivory tower. And this was a time shortly after the first tech revolution, which had brought strategy consultancies like uh, the BCGs and McKinsey's of the world to look for uh, science and engineering PhDs to have credibility with all the all the tech startups. So I decided to go for interviews. And before I knew it, I stood with offers from both BCG and McKinsey and uh, ended up um, you know, joining joining the sector. And the first project I got stopped on was uh, on a large pharma merger, actually Pharmacia and Pfizer. And despite the misgivings about healthcare that I'd had as a teenager, um, I found I really liked the industry. I really liked the culture. And I, most importantly, really liked the mission. I worked a lot with Pfizer and uh, ended up being offering a really interesting job at headquarters in New York um, to help evolve the company's portfolio strategy and reshape uh, the footprint uh, of the Pfizer portfolio, which eventually uh, led to me joining uh, the leadership team uh, of the global innovative pharma business as a head of strategy and innovation, where among other, I was responsible for uh, the first round of digital acceleration at Pfizer. And that's where I first came in contact uh, with Ekana. Um, and uh, I ended up leaving Pfizer, as you said, after about nine years. And after a brief stint in uh, a pharma strategy consultancy, was approached by Adobe. Um, they were looking to really expand their presence when it comes to digital marketing automation in healthcare, uh, boldly construed, and was looking for somebody who could translate technology into that industry. So, so that's my journey. It's, it's, it's fairly long, but I think very interesting. You also asked me about what still excites me about the life science industry. There is a really, really a true uh, revolution going on in biology. Um, the dramatic progress in genetics and cell biology is, is really transforming a discipline. And it's begun, you know, over the last five years or so, uh, translating into new approaches and treatment options. The fact that we have much better models now really, you know, is really promising. And I think will allow for a lot of, uh, lot of progress over the next couple of decades. 
Well, that's great. And obviously, as you mentioned, your background has been a very diverse and exciting and interesting one with the theme and the topic of this podcast around contextual intelligence. The more points of context, the more data points you have to inform a perspective, the more effective it will be. And obviously, you have all of those for your background. I think for the the industry, quite often terms like digital transformation or commercial transformation or omni-channel, they exist in the industry for quite a while. And when that moment goes from discussion to a catalyzing effect, when it really takes root, is always something that's interesting to observe in the life sciences industry. And it feels like we're kind of at that point right now where a lot of those terms and movements that have been talked about are becoming reality is that something that you have seen and would agree with? And, and if so, what do you think is, is driving that? I absolutely agree with that. I, I think, you know, as you said, it's something that's been talked about for a long time. Um, and honestly, relatively little happened uh, for a number of years. You know, I think, I think obviously people became more aware of the role of digital. I think that there was a sense uh, that there had to be a significant digital element in the future. But in terms of taking action, the industry did very little. Uh, what, is, what has changed lately is really the situation that we are finding ourselves in now uh, with, with COVID. That is, you know, the single biggest catalyst uh, that we have had in a long time. And I can definitely say from, you know, what I'm seeing at Adobe that that, that has transformed and dramatically accelerated uh, the interest and, and accelerated our business. Um, you know, we're working now across all the big or most of the big uh, pharma companies, you know, to help them really rapidly accelerate uh, their digital transformation. And, and they're looking at you know, to us to, to help educate them and, and help them think through how they can accomplish that. And as you do that, because we, we've had the same conversations, I think a lot of our customers um, also are, are in this state where something that they had intended to move towards, but over a a slower cadence is now in rapid, rapid acceleration mode because of what's happened and the inability to go out and physically call on HCPs and have those conversations at all now puts a great emphasis on digital. As you counsel customers and have those conversations, what are the points of emphasis that you're really trying to drive home as they try to move something that maybe was on a two to three year schedule and now needs to be on a two to three quarter or even two to three month schedule? Yeah, I think the first point that I try to bring home to them is that this is not really so much about technology. Obviously, technology is important. Uh, digital, uh, it has to be powered by technology. But, but the real considerations, the real problems often come down much more to process and to organization and to leadership than it does to technology. And a lot of the time that was spent you know, discussing with pharma executives and also executives and other parts of, of the healthcare sector is, is really around, you know, how can you, how can you realistically make this happen? What is the right approach to take, um, you know, to digital transformation? Where do you start with what level of ambitions and how do you progress from there? The other key message is that, you know, as you think about digital and digital transformation, that, that's probably, the traditional inclination in uh, the life science industry and healthcare has been to think about, you know, channels and to think about digital uh, pretty separate from everything else that you do. Where we have seen success in other industries, and obviously Adobe has been around for a while and is working deeply with industries such as financial services and retail and travel and hospitality, is really when you take a more holistic view. 
when you look at the journey uh, that your customers are going through and think about both the digital part but also the offline part and design an experience um, you know, to, to fit that journey and to serve those customers rather than thinking about technologies and thinking about you know, separate touch points. That's really interesting. And so that's something we've seen as well, that the, the conversation, although it tends to be very much about technology because AI and machine learning and a lot of the work that we both do with customers uh, focuses on that, the, the element that will drive success quite often is much more human, whether that is in the end customer's behavior, whether that is in the habits and process that exists within uh, a pharma company and how they operate their commercial process. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is such a critical element that is around the behavioral, um, almost ethnographic side of things as opposed to the technological side? Well, I think it's not unique in talking to colleagues to, to uh, you know, the pharma industry, life science industry. And that's true across, you know, companies and in all industries. I think reality is just that life sciences are, are further behind uh, in terms of their digital transformation and have had a very, have had a, a very successful business model for a very long period of time, you know, relying in the case of pharma primarily on representatives out in the field and that's worked that has worked really well and in fact most of the executives that i work with have come up through that route they have started out as reps and then worked their way up the organization and eventually ended up in the executive suite and so i think that's 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 success and that long history uh, represents a barrier both in terms of mindset, but also in terms of all the processes that have been set up to support it. So if you think about uh, one of the key barriers that we're finding, for example, the personalization, uh, which is around content and content review in the pharmaceutical sector, you know, that's really been set up to serve a model where you had, um, you know, rolling out new materials on a six monthly basis to the field. And for that, it works well. It just doesn't work so well. When you have many more channels, when you have many more permutations, when um, in, in the case of digital, you benefit greatly from being able to respond very rapidly. That's not something that that process and the tools enabling the process really support. That is that is one aspect that, that we're working a lot on. And, and we could talk about other processes as well. But that's that's the that's the challenge. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm curious, I want to go back in the, the time machine a little bit, because you had mentioned at the beginning that we first crossed paths, not you and I personally, but you with Octana, when you were at Pfizer, probably about seven years ago or so. So that, you know, given that a, a number of, you know, the world leading, the world's leading pharmaceutical companies are making a shift now towards this digital transformation, you were looking at that in 2013, which makes you quite a, a pioneer in that way. But what were you seeing at that time? that told you that this was going to happen, it was just a matter of when? Yeah, so, you know, it didn't happen immediately. I got recruited or I, I got asked to lead a digital transformation uh, effort for the primary care business advisor after I had uh, become part of the leadership team. Um, really, you know, the context for that was that in Europe, uh, the primary care business was losing several important products due to a loss of exclusivity, a loss of patents. And so the business was shrinking rapidly. And so we had to think about you know, how can we support a business if we're not able to pay for all the infrastructure that, that is that, that is there 
uh, right now, and, and that brought digital into focus. And we started talking about digital. The focus uh, was initially very much in building websites. You know, talk was all at the time about remote detailing, you know, standard mass emails. And it was all very marketing-driven and not tied to field activity. The, the problem was, as I dug into that, um, you know, all the data that, that we had, and we, we had already quite a bit, showed that the efforts had limited commercial impact and that it was still sales, the sales force uh, that was driving most of the commercial impact. And, and that led me to think about, you know, how can we make this much more meaningful? Is, is there a way? And to whether... You know, the, the best way to achieve that would be to use digital in coordinated manner with the fields uh, to enable and augment, you know, the impact of the field force, which was driving most of our business. And that's that's really that's really where it started and where we started to explore what we could do in terms of enabling the field force and tying uh, what was happening from a marketing perspective and especially digital marketing perspective uh, to what was going on uh out with our customers when our, our field was meeting them. So Frederick, in that time, so we're talking about 2013 to now, what do you think has changed with regard to either HCP behaviors or uh, internal organizations and technology investments or access to data at pharma companies? What has changed to make, to create a more receptive environment for AI and machine learning and some of the intelligence that's now driving this commercial transformation? Well, I mean, we start in with um, you know internal technology and data. I think what's made a really big difference is the availability of data, and in particular, the uh, ability to tie together many different data sources and make them available for uh, you know av available to take action on. And uh, I mean, Adobe has a platform as GDP that uh, is set up to enable exactly that and other companies have similar systems, which has made it much easier than the past where, you know, it was a matter of, um, you know, building or tying in one channel at a time. I, I certainly also think, you know, the AI algorithms have uh, gotten significantly better and easier to use. And there's more skilled talent available, uh, you know, to implement them. And, and to use them. So I think that's a, a difference from a, a technology perspective. Of course, uh, when we think about pharma, a lot of it is, is, also, uh, is also mindset. When it comes to um, the external environment, I mean, it's, not, it's getting increasingly, increasingly complex. And you talked about HCPs, but I think you know, more and more, it's, it's, it's not just a matter of going to, to doctors, it's really more of an accounts-based effort and um, they are, whereas physicians tended to have, at least in the U.S. or many regions of the U.S., a more independence historically, you know, that's now reducing. And um, they're more dependent on payers. They're more dependent on uh, other actors within, within, their, uh, within the systems. And, and so being able to tie that data together, being able to um, orchestrate a coordinated effort across all the stakeholders that influence a decision is, is something that, uh, you know, AIs can definitely be helpful with. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So let's, let's talk about contextual intelligence in, with regard to your career and your perspectives and your roles, because as we've talked about previously, contextual intelligence, we define as the ability to take what's learned in a variety of different environments and, and adapt it and make it work 
in a new environment rather than just taking what's learned in the same environment and repeating it. And so I think your background really speaks to that because you'll be able to draw on these perspectives you've had at a consulting company or now at a technology company or previously inside Pfizer for so long. So how do you apply contextual intelligence in your own strategy work or your own problem solving? How do you draw on that background to solve problems? You know, all the elements of my experience have brought uh, you know, different capabilities um, to my to my tool set. Um, you know, so certainly at McKinsey and at BCG, you know, I learned how to solve problems in a, in a structured way and apply a mix of analytics uh, intuition and frameworks, um, you know, to get get to solutions, and so that was very helpful. Uh, I think what you know, working in industry really brought was an understanding of what it takes to move a big organization. One thing I definitely were, learned at Pfizer was how difficult that is, and how much more difficult that often is than you know coming up with a, a solution to a problem. And one thing that I really emphasize uh, now in in my role and you know, also in my role at Pfizer is focus and simplicity in, in any solutions. Uh, because ultimately, typically what you come up with is something that is ideas that you're trying to, that, that are supposed to influence uh, the behavior of, you know, a fairly large group of people. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to do. And it's particularly difficult if the ideas are not very simple and communicated in a simple way. So, so that's definitely uh, something I've learned, and it's made me very aware as I do my work with Adobe now uh, of uh, the organizational constraints and the organizational dynamic and how that can influence um, success or failure uh, of, uh, of projects. And you know, as I said before, it's, it's rarely, especially in, in life sciences, it's, it's really rarely about the capabilities of the software or the technology. It's, it's much more about how it is rolled out and, uh, you know, how it's enabled um, by the right leadership, um, by the right structure and by the right processes. That's really interesting. And it, it makes perfect sense. Um, related to that, you know, we spend a lot of time at Octana as we work with, you know, we work with you and your team at Adobe, or we work with a McKinsey or other partners. And a lot of times technology companies are always trying to understand their customer organization as well as they can for, as you mentioned right there, it's not so much about the, the technology itself. It's about how it can be rolled out, how it can scale, how it can be delivered most effectively to a variety of different people within that company, some very technologically savvy, some less so. Are there other things that would be helpful for technology companies who are supporting life sciences companies to know that might surprise them a little bit about the work culture or about the decision-making approach that would be really helpful for them as they think about supporting life sciences companies better? Yeah, there's there certainly, um, there certainly you know, multiple uh, in multiple observations that I can share. And of course, it varies a bit from company to company. Um, but I think, um, you know, one thing that, that is very important uh, to realize, given where the, the industry is, is that, you know, you really have to, you really have to help educate the stakeholders. You really have to be able to come in and explain to them what the technology will do for them. It's not, you know, some of my colleagues in the retail sector you know, they, in some ways, they have challenges, uh, different challenges from us, but 
in terms of um, you know explaining technology, that's not very that's that's not a real problem that they are they are faced with um, because most of the retail clients have been using this for a long period of time. They may be looking to upgrade or slightly change their tech stack and how they're doing digital marketing, but for for a large part, you know they understand how to do it. That is not the case within pharma companies. They really have to paint the picture for them and help them understand how to move towards um, that that north star picture that that you paint. So that is that is one lesson and something that we've changed at Adobe uh, to great effect. The other thing is you know who you're interacting with within a company. You know within pharma, even though digital and IT has taken on um, you know a more important role over time, and some of the companies have put in place chief digital officers and so on. You know, on the commercial side, it is still the commercial teams that drive the business, that set the agenda. And so it's not enough to go and talk to, to IT or you, you will often have limited success doing that unless you go you know, and talk commercial as well and, and involve the commercial side of the house. Uh, that, is, that is very important because they'll ultimately uh, be paying and, and they are ultimately the ones who will have to endorse the tools. Um, so that is that is another um, that's another key insight. And then uh, the third thing is, at least at Adobe, and I don't know how you approach it at Actana, uh, you know, there is a pension for going you know very high up the ladder very quickly uh, when you get into uh, new clients, and that's backfired on some occasions. I think it's often underestimated, um, you know, how how much practitioners. Um, within within the organization can have of, of influence. And it's typically not the senior executives who, who make the decision, certainly not on, on their own. They'll go down into the organization and ask people who are respected uh, for their opinion. And, um, you know, if you go around them, that can cause a lot of problems and, and lead to a lot of loss of, of business. Interesting. That's really fascinating and makes and it makes complete sense. I'm wondering, Frederick, can you remember a time when a technology company did a particularly good job when you were at Pfizer about handling those steps, about talking to the right people or about presenting the technology and the benefit and the value that it would contribute. Was there an example that you can think of uh, of a company that did that quite well and, and would be sort of a best practice? Yeah, there are a couple of examples. Um, so one company and both companies we ended up uh, partnering with one was Actana. I, I thought it was, uh, you know, very constructive dialogue that we had uh, when we started uh, engaging with Actana. It was really joint problem solving, and all along the way, I felt that you know it was it was a real it was a real partnership, and we were working towards the same goal. So uh, that is one example, and I think I, I thought I should bring that up here. Another example of a company. Um, that we worked really well with and that did an excellent job was uh, was Google. And similar to to you, they took a very they took very much a partnering approach and and focused on how they could work with us, uh, you know, to to solve problems um, in our business. And we actually we ended up setting up some joint programs, in, including an externship. Uh, for some of our, uh, you know, top marketers where we went to Google and jointly worked on, on uh, some of the challenges we had uh, together with, uh, with people from there. And it wasn't, you know, of course, there was a commercial interest and interest in, in building up, uh, you know, strong relationship with Pfizer. But 
you know, none of what we did was directly framed in, in, in terms of that. I mean, it was really, we really had the feeling of that we were working together on, on solving problems that they listened to us, that they brought, um, you know, the best thinking and resources to the table. And that built a lot of confidence and built a very strong relationship that, that's uh, still lastful today. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for the compliment on Akchana. I now feel terrible about my question because as you did that, it sounded like it was such a shameless attempt to get you to plug us, which was, I hope the audience will trust well, me. And believe that. That, not. Was, that was not the attempt. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the attempt, but I appreciate that. Um, so I guess maybe the last question, you know, the, what we get asked most frequently, and I'm sure this is happening for you in conversations with customers is, you know, the way that we're needing to adapt right now, um, what is going to be temporary and what will kind of return back to the old way of doing things when hopefully we return to some sense of normalcy? And what has this catalyzed in terms of permanent change? And are there things that you have feel like you have fairly good clarity on, or at least as much as any of us can have clarity right now, um, about what falls into each camp? What will be temporary in return to the old way and, and what has really changed probably for the good at this point? I certainly, in, in terms of things that I've changed, I, mean, I certainly think that you know, digital will play an increasing role and we talk uh, in particular about digital marketing. You know, there are significant investments being made now and and, and significant progress being made. And I, I don't see, you know, that going away. I do see digital playing a much larger role in engaging with patients, engaging uh, with HCPs, and and also, um, you know, in the context of what you're doing in, you know, supporting uh, supporting the organization, supporting the commercial organization in, in their decision-making and their processes. That said, um, you know, I sometimes hear that uh, we're, it's going to be all digital. We're not going to have, you know, field force going forward. I don't think that's going to be the case anytime soon. I think the human element will continue to matter. Uh, what I often point people uh, within my current organization to is the fact that you know, our sales model is still very human in nature. We do have some digital tools, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's mostly through building relationships and through conversations, uh, you know, between our teams and teams on the other sides that, that, a, that a sale happens. And in terms of you know, the complexity of the products, in terms of, uh, you know, the magnitude of the business, it's honestly not so different from a lot of what's happening, uh, on the, on the pharma, uh, on the pharma side of things. Um, so, so I think, you know, the human relationships are going to stay. I do think digital is going to play a larger role. I also think or hope uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, reputation of the industry uh, will improve through this and that people will realize the contributions that the pharma industry and, and the healthcare industry overall uh, can make to society. It's probably the industry through, uh, you know, some cross transgressions and uh, through faults of its own that's ended up uh, with the reputation that it has. But um, the fact is that, you, you know, without uh, without good medicine, without progress uh, in, in terms of understanding human biology, uh, you know, we're not going to make progress and we're certainly not going to eradicate uh, diseases like uh, like COVID. And I think that's becoming increasingly clear. So hopefully that will lead, uh, you know, to a more uh, positive relationship with society and, and a more uh, a better 
way of collaborating going forward. Well, Frederick, I feel like we could keep talking and talking. I would, I would love to, but there are a couple of questions here that we ask in each interview that I'm actually quite curious to hear your responses now, given your very diverse background and your thoughtful answers to everything we've talked about so far. So if you're, uh, if you're ready for it, we're going to jump into Frederick Bay in context. Are you, are you game for that? Sure, sure. All right. So the first question is, who has been an influence on your career that might surprise us? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this. I, I would say my high school French teacher, surprisingly enough, because the reason that I left Denmark and didn't go straight to Copenhagen, which has those four institute, uh, which is an excellent uh, you know, school for, for physics, was that I had a really inspiring French teacher, uh, and I really enjoyed learning French. I really lo- enjoyed learning about French culture. And so instead of going straight to university, uh, I decided to take a detour. I actually decided to apply uh, to your university in France and went there for a year to, um, you know, to study uh, social science and, and philosophy with the intent of going back to Denmark and, uh, you know, starting my physics and math studies. But I had a great time there. It was uh, really eye-opening to somebody who came from a small provincial town in Denmark, and so I decided. Uh, to continue my uh, journey abroad and and uh, went to the UK instead um, to uh, study study physics there, which in turn took me to the US and and on the journey that I've been on uh, you know since uh, since leaving high school. Um, so she definitely had a tremendous impact. That's great. Honestly, it's always interesting what what ends up kickstarting a a path or a direction. Um, if money was not a factor, what career would you most like to pursue? If money was not a factor, yes, I, I think it's it's actually not too distant from the world that I'm now. I, I think there, I think it's sad to see um, the curable health issues that are still present in much of the underdeveloped or developing world. And um, you know, if if I had a choice um, and money was not an issue, if family was not an issue, that would be something that I would really like to uh, work more deeply on. And I hope I'll get the, um, you know, get the opportunity in the future to work on on health issues in the developing world and, and help address the just incredible unmet need there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, given what you've, you've studied and what you've looked at. How about on the other side, what profession would you most not want to pursue, no matter what it paid? Oh, there are probably a number, but um, <laughs> the first that came to mind was accounting. Uh, I, don't, I don't really, I'm not a, you know, I'm not, not somebody who really loves rules and, and, and process. It doesn't, it doesn't excite me. Uh, I like to be, like to do things. I like to do new things. I like to learn new things. I like to be, uh, be creative. I have to like to drive innovation. Uh, which is quite the opposite of my perception of that field. Of course, I might be way off, but um, yeah. that's, that's what I would tell you. Well, I, I don't think our listenership is going to be growing too much in the in the political arena or in the accounting field. That seems to be those two seem to be coming up a few times in this in this category. Um, what is the best book you've read recently, and why? I read a couple of really interesting books recently. Um, I'd say one that I really enjoyed is by a, a fellow former physicist, Safi Barkal, it's called Loon Shots, uh, where that's about how you, um, how you can protect innovation within big companies 
and how you can make sure that that innovation is actually practically applicable and is translated into action and how you strike the balance um, you know, between having, um, having true research and development, true innovation on one hand that needs a lot of freedom where you have ideas that are typically very fragile to start with. And then on the other side, you know, being having to run a, a company where operation and process and repeatability and scaling uh, is, is, is critical. And he had some great insights on how that has been done in the context of science, in the context of, of the Second World War uh, effort, in the context of um, you know, Bell Labs and AT&T uh, that I found really inspiring. That's fascinating. What was the, the, the title of the book again? Was what? Loon Shots instead of Moonshots. Moon Got it. Great. Okay. Made a note of that. Um, okay. So you're at a family gathering and your eight-year-old nephew asks you what you do for a living. What do you tell him? Um, yeah, I would say like I, I do to my eight-year-old daughter. I work for uh, one of the world's largest uh, software companies. And my job within that company is to help doctors, hospitals, and healthcare companies use the great software that the companies produces to help patients get the right medicine and treatment and to stay healthy once they recover. That's great. And I would imagine, knowing how intelligent you have been throughout this conversation, that your eight-year-old daughter processes that and probably has about 10 follow-up questions for you. Yeah. So, but that's, that's great. Um, you're, all right, last question here. So Frederick's ultimate dinner party for four. Who is in attendance and what are you serving? Yeah, so I, I thought about this. Um, there are some people that I really uh, enjoy listening to and I would invite two of them to the dinner. So the Farid Sakaria, who is on, on CNN, who is a um, you know, deep thinker when it comes to, to foreign policy. I always find him extremely insightful and, um, you know, very knowledgeable. And I always learn something when listening to him. Another person like that is, is Bill Gates, um, especially lately when it's come uh, to the pandemic. I've really been uh, impressed by his knowledge and by his depth of thinking and, um, you know, how he, how he approaches things in, in, in a very, uh, you know, very original, and very thoughtful way. So that's another person uh, I would invite to the dinner. And then maybe an odd one out, I thought uh, Xi Jinping would be interesting to have at the dinner. Um, you know, given the role that China is playing and is slated to play going forward, uh, you know, I'd be really interested in uh, getting to know him better and learn more about how he's thinking about the world, what his goals are, what his ambitions are, um, to the extent that he would share it. So I think that would be that would be a really interesting conversation. Um, from in terms of what uh, I would like to serve, um, you know, I, I think some uh, new Scandinavian cuisine. Um, I have had uh, the, the the pleasure of uh, going to a restaurant. There's it called Nomad at its early stages of its inception in Copenhagen. That's later uh, gone on to become one of the top restaurants in the world. And you know, they have some really interesting uh, cuisine based on. You know what they can find in, in the environment uh, in Denmark and around Scandinavia, uh, creating dishes that you never think of, but that are nevertheless really interesting and really delicious. I think a common theme when I've asked this question is that by the time the person ends up giving the the, the guests in the in the cuisine, I most want to be the waiter at this event just because there's such interesting conversation and things being served. Um, 
Frederick, thank you so much for joining us. Honestly, I, you know, I, I would love to do like a four-part series because I feel like we barely scratched the surface on some of the interesting perspectives you have. But I thank you so much for coming on and really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for inviting me. And I look forward to uh, continuing to collaborate with, uh, with you and the Exana team. Thank you. All right. Thanks again, Frederick. That's it for this episode of Contextual Intelligence. I'm your host, Clay Hausman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, you can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review or a comment or a question or all the above so we can make sure that this podcast brings the proper context to your work. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.